You know, when you get that, I mean, we left last Saturday, right? No, the 24th, we left. Uh, see, I lose track of time. It, that happens when you get old. Um, it may not happen to you. But we left on Saturday the 23rd and uh, went to Kansas City, Independence, and visited with some friends, stayed all night there with them, and then went to church with them that morning. Uh, proceeded on from there the next day, got into Fort Worth about 9 o'clock, and I proceeded to work uh, eight-hour shifts with my brother-in-law digging trenches in 105-degree heat. Um, Kathy goes, well, you didn't have to. And so the thing is, what am I going to do if I don't? You know, take the girls shopping? Seriously, that's not happening. They know how to shop without me, and I would just ruin their day, sitting around looking at my watch, thinking how much longer you're going to be. So all of that. Then the next Sunday, we went to church at Birchman Baptist Church. Again, two totally different churches. Um, and you know what's interesting about some of that is I sit there, and, and I'm confident Andy does this, okay? All right? And, and, and it's possible that, you know, that you all do too, but I'm sitting there, I'm a pastor, and I'm listening to the preachers, and I'm going, that's not what I'd have done. That's not how I would have said it. That's not the way I would have presented that, okay? And um, yeah, am I right? Every preacher, right? And you know, you, that was pretty good, but I would have done this. I mean, seriously, it's not a negative thing for me to say that, that he probably does it. I do that too. Um, and, and so you look at it and you go, wait a minute, why did he go that direction instead of that? And you probably wonder some of those things about me. That's okay. Here's the thing. That's kind of what was happening with Paul. You know, we can sit in the pew as a pastor, as lay people, and it's easy to evaluate the message and the messenger. It's easy when you're not in somebody else's boots, shoes, sandals, or flip-flops to judge the steps that they would take and what they would have done, what you think they should have done and what you would have done. And that's largely what we see has happened with the Apostle Paul. All or many of the people in Corinth looked at the Apostle Paul and said, you did it wrong. And pretty much it doesn't matter what he did. He did it wrong. His preaching was not uh, powerful enough. His writing, his letters were way stronger than his preaching was. In front of them, he had no charismatic appeal. He was, um, uh, had been probably sick and was just recovering from an illness. And I remember a few weeks ago when I got up and I had almost no energy and I just couldn't hardly move. And I can see, you know, and so he was going through that and they're saying, you're weak and sickly in front of us. How can you really be blessed by God and apostle of Jesus Christ if, if that's the way you present? They were kind of, some of them um, being affected by what we will call uh, prosperity preachers. By that, I mean, if, if you are sick, well, God must not be in your favor and God must not be blessing you. If you've got something bad going on in your life, then God must not be giving you blessings and, and taking care of you. If, and so all the prosperity preachers and the philosophers that were coming uh, to Corinth after Paul had left were teaching these kind of things to them, that Paul can't be blessed, because look at him. He's been through so many hardships. How can we say God has blessed him? You know? And so they were giving all kinds of things and, all, and, and, and accusing him of all kinds of things. Um, and in these first verse, few verses, the first uh, 
uh, verses 12 through 22, they were accusing him of unholy and improper conduct, of selfish motives, of being fickle and indecisive, uh, and we'll see why for some of these, of being inconsistent in his message and his preaching. He would write one thing and maybe do another or say another in preaching. That's what they were accusing him of. Weak and shaky in the faith, unanointed in the ministry, uh, and those are just the ones for verses 12 through 22. And so he was answering some of those problems. In writing this letter, what he was doing was defending, to a large extent, his apostleship. And there's a reason for that. Not because he cared so much about what they thought about him, but because what, they, what he cared about was what they thought about the gospel. And if he is the one who brought them the gospel, then if his apostleship was not true, then what about the gospel? Was it not true also? And he wanted to make sure that they understood the gospel. So in doing so, he was defending himself, his apostleship, his ministry, and the ministry of Timothy and Silas or Silvanus also. So that's what we're looking at here. That's kind of the, the, um, his goal. And I got to tell you, um, sometimes I read Paul and I think, what in the world is he saying? Um, and so I can kind of wonder along with him a little bit, you know, um, but his goal was to correct their theology more than it was to correct their, their um, perspective on who he was. But in order to correct their theology, he needed to correct their thinking about him. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. And if you have your Bible and you're able, will you stand while we read? The Apostle Paul writes under the influence, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us, though in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh with me, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you that, that you loved us so much you sent your son, but thank you so much that, that you loved us so much that you also sent your word, that we could read it, study it, and that through it we might know you and we might know, know, know your son. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For our boasting is this, you know what I did a few minutes ago? I boasted. I really do not. I'm not, you know, uh, 
Anybody here like working with electricity? Anybody? You do. I don't. So most of the time, um, I don't work with electricity. But I did. And three out of four of the outlets are wired correctly. Three out of four. That's pretty good for me. And so, so far there's no fire in the house that we know of. Um, but... <laughs> And, and, and there won't be because I've got friends that I'm contacting what's wrong with this. So here's the deal, okay? Often we boast, and maybe we kind of do it undercover a little bit like I did. But guess what? The Apostle Paul was boasting about something else. Now when he boasts about how great we are, Muhammad Ali, you know, I'm the greatest, I'm the best. I uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I love that saying, but, you know, that's pretty proud. Uh, and so... Boasting most of the time when we think about it is bad. I mean, if somebody, you know somebody, and that's all they do is tell you how great they are, guess what you want to do? See them in the grocery store, you go the other direction. You don't want to hear them all the time. You don't want to talk to them. You don't want to hear about how great they are. It's okay if you tell them that you think they're awesome, but for them to tell everybody else that they're awesome, you don't want to hear that. The Apostle Paul, when he comes to this, he says, for our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. So if you go all the way through all of that and read that carefully, you can think about so many things. Our boasting, not a good thing. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Here's something that is a, is a very good thing for us to remember. I love this. Uh, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Guess what? I don't have any of those, so I can't glory in any of those. Okay? Any of that that I get, I get from God. Okay? So I'm not glorying. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. This is the word of the Lord. That I am the Lord, Yahweh, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He is boasting in the Lord. Because at the end of this, we see this. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Okay, all of that, that testimony of the conscience that he conducted himself, that he and Timothy and Silvanus and all of his team conducted themselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity was by the grace of God. There's always the temptation not to do that. Okay, there's always the temptation to um, to not conduct ourselves the way that we ought to. And so the Apostle Paul writes and says, I was able to do that. By the grace of God. And so when he says that, what he's doing is he's not boasting about himself and about how much he has done and about how good he is and about the fact that he, um, he was able to conduct himself in simplicity and godly sincerity. He was boasting about the fact that God gave him that ability and helped him to live that way. Think about this idea here, okay? Um, I, I just want to kind of give you a picture of what was happening. If we understand the letters and... Um, all of the stuff in the book correctly. What was happening was the Apostle Paul had visited Corinth. He had stayed there. He had preached there. He had taught there. Many were converted. Many came to Christ. And um, he reasoned with them daily and, and, uh, and showed them the truth of the, of the Old Testament scripture that it was pointing towards Jesus Christ. They came to Christ through faith. And then, then he moved on. And when he moved on, there were some unscrupulous people that came in. They were philosophers. They were town-to-town uh, -town preachers. They were people who would prey on uh, people who weren't very strong in the faith. They would move into their houses and they would expect them to put them up and take care of them and feed them and even make money off of them. They were um, 
And, and in doing this, uh, their goal was to keep people from, well, was to make money. That was their goal. And in doing that, they would, they would in order to convince people that their way of thinking was right, they had to prove to them that Paul's way of thinking was wrong. And so when they came into the Corinthian church, they maybe were in the whole, the whole congregation, everybody together all at once. Um, and, then, and then they would break up sometimes into, you know, they'd go home. And so this person would go to a, a, a home where they would be in a house church where they could even lead that family completely astray. And so um, the problem was they were teaching things that were contradictory to the doctrine of the scriptures, to Paul's gospel, to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there was no oversight, if you will, in their teaching. Okay? So people were falling away. And in doing that, what they were doing was they were not just falling away from the gospel, they were also pulling them away from their love and respect for the Apostle Paul. And so he was coming in and trying to prove to them that, um, that he, he, he was not hypocritical. He had a pure conscience. He didn't write one thing and mean another. He wasn't fickle and indecisive. I think I'll do this. No, I changed my mind. No, I think I'll do this instead. Okay? He was trying to prove to them that his message and his preaching, his written message and his preaching were the same and that he was anointed in Christ just like every other apostle of Jesus Christ was. And so that's what he's writing here and that's what he's trying to do. Um, and again, I'm telling you, he did it not so that they would care so much about him, but so that they would keep their gospel straight. Okay? For we are not writing any other thing to you than what you read or understand. I love this picture here, okay? We could talk about simplicity and sincerity, and simplicity is, is living a simple life and not expecting a whole lot of uh, extra amenities, not, you know, the, the, I mean, wouldn't you love to have a, a 6,000 square foot home and two maids to take care of it? I mean, seriously, right? You know? And, and you know when you get up, your coffee's made, you don't have to worry about that? I mean, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, and the sugar sitting right there on the counter. Um, but the Apostle Paul said that's not the kind of lifestyle he was living. He, he had learned how to, um, how to live and to praise God in good circumstances and in bad with plenty and in, in need. Okay? And so um, we can talk about that. Godly sincerity is the idea of purity. All right? Um, <laughs> something that's shaken and rolled through a sieve. Here's, the, here's my, I, my thinking about purity. One of the very first things we did when we took off on vacation was to stop and get fuel. Stopped at Thornton's and Pontiac and uh, filled up and a wall of gas was flowing into the tank. I went out and I washed my windshield because I want to see, right? So I washed the windshield, I step aside and I look and I didn't get that. I bug guts is still there. And I got to scrape again and roll it again and clean that off and do it again. And I go, well, I got it. It's good. That window's clean. And I get in the car after we're done, and I'm going, not so much. Not so much. Because from one side, you can see that it looks clean, and you get inside. Well, there's a couple things you see. First of all, you see that spot that you missed out there, okay? And then you can also see how dirty it is on the inside, okay? And I, I, I don't even ever clean the inside of my windshield, and, and Kathy's on me all the time. But see, that's the idea of purity about this. She's a good wife. Yes, you are. You're wiping them all the time. Okay, no, you can't drive my car. You'll mess up my dirty windshield. But that's the idea of purity, okay? That it's there on the outside and clean on the inside. All right? And the Apostle Paul says, yes, I live this in godly sincerity. And that other word, that can be uh, interpreted as purity, okay? 
I lived this style, all of us did, who were traveling and preaching and teaching there in Corinth. We lived that kind of life. We lived a life of simplicity and godly sincerity or purity. And so we, you know, we can talk about that. And I, I wonder if some of this is, you know, it kind of goes to that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I, 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 I wonder sometimes how, again, how we maybe we're not looking full in the face of Jesus. You remember when Moses came down from the mountain? Remember he went up and he talked to God? And he came down from the mountain and he didn't realize that his face was glowing with light and they had to cover him. I think, I wonder sometimes if, it, you know, you, you put the sunglasses on so you don't see the brightness. You cover his face with, with, with that. And I wonder sometimes if we're that same way a little bit with Jesus. That, oh yeah, we want him to save us. We want him to walk with us and to calm all of our fears and solve all of our problems while we're here in life. But we don't really want to see the full glory of his face. Because not only would the things of this earth grow strangely dim, but our sins would grow more obvious in our own hearts. But the Apostle Paul turned his eyes upon Jesus, focused on what he was doing, lived his life, a simple life, and uh, with simplicity and godly sincerity or purity. And, and so he says, I write these things to you, and I, um, I'm not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. In other words, see, some of them were saying, your writings are too difficult. We, we understand when you preach, um, even though you don't really have a, a lot of charisma when you preach, uh, we understand what you're talking about then, but when you write, we don't get it. Okay, he says, listen, I'm not writing to you stuff that you shouldn't understand. In fact, you should be able to understand this. And there's a reason for that. Okay, one of them is because the spirit of God dwells in them, too. And he may be pointing to something there. If you don't understand the writings and what I've written to you, maybe it's because the spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. Okay, and so so um, but I, I do not write. We're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are your boast, as you also are ours. You know, you wonder what's going to happen in heaven. Jesus is going to look at the Apostle Paul and go, what did you do for the cause? I, I called you to be a missionary to the, the kings and to Gentiles and, and to the Jews, and what did you do? The Apostle Paul is going to say, take a look at Corinth. They're our boast. I mean, there are a lot of other churches that the Apostle Paul planted, but he says to them, you are our boast. And so when he stands before Christ, and he has, is, he, is that what he's going to say? Look at Corinth. See what we did and what you did in their lives, in the, in the lives of the Corinthians. And then he says not only this, since you are our boast, we also are your boast. Now that's interesting. Because he's already said our boasting is this, but now they're going to get to boast. That's interesting. They're going to get to boast that the Apostle Paul is the one who led them to Christ. And if the Apostle Paul's ministry is real, and he's claiming that it is, and some of them are saying that it's not, if the Apostle Paul's ministry is real and he led them to Christ, then guess what? Saying he led us to Christ is good evidence that they really were led to Christ. So, but even in that, in verse 14, he says, as also you have understood us in part. In other words, they don't completely understand the Apostle Paul. They only understand him in part. And if they understood him completely, they wouldn't be making these false accusations against him. You know, there's always the jokes about 
husbands and wives and about men understanding women. Where are women from? And where are men from? Mars. Yeah. Okay, so we get that picture. We understand. Um, I'm 61 years old. I've been married for 36 years. And I still don't understand her. You know what? She doesn't really understand me completely either. And you know what? We never will. Because she is her and I am me. And that's a good thing. Now, do we understand each other more than we did before we got married? We better. But we still don't understand each other perfectly. We can see things that the other one wants, hear things that the other one wants, but sometimes she'll say something or think something, and I'm going, what? And she'll say, you didn't read my mind? And no, I didn't read her mind. And she doesn't read mine. And sometimes I don't even read mine. They only understood Paul in part. And maybe it was because they didn't really have the Spirit of God in them. And maybe it was because they weren't really trying. But because they only understood him in part, they were accusing him of all of these different kinds of things. And if they would just listen to him a little bit more, maybe if I would just listen to her a little bit more, they'd understand each other a little bit better. And in this confidence, verse 15, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. So Ephesus, he's going to go to Corinth, then go to Macedonia. And then after he visits in, and when he has stopped in Corinth, he wanted to stay for a while. You look over in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 16, 7, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while for you. You know, I don't want to just go stay a night and then keep moving. I want to stay a while and visit with you and share with you and maybe correct some of the things that they misunderstood about his teaching. And apparently what happened was he told them that's what he was going to do. He was going to go there on the way to Macedonia. He was going to spend some time there. And then he was going to go on to Macedonia, spend some time there. And while he was gone, they were to be collecting for the saints in Jerusalem. He was going to come back, spend some more time in Corinth. Then he was going to take some of their uh, emissaries, some of their envoys, some of their church members with him. They would carry the offering and they would go to Jerusalem together to give that money to the church in Jerusalem. That's what he was hoping to do. Spend some time in Corinth, go to Macedonia, spend some time ministering there, come back to uh, Corinth, minister for a while there, and then go on to Jerusalem. That's not what happened. Apparently, when he got to uh, Corinth, there was enough chaos and enough trouble and enough different um, opinions brewing because of, um, because of the, uh, the church-to-church preachers that were going around trying to uh, steal away uh, followers that, that there was trouble brewing. And he got there, and apparently, apparently, because of all of the chaos and the difficulty, the Apostle Paul didn't stay there very long. And he took off and went on to Macedonia. And so um, they then said that he was fickle and that he changed his plans on a, on a, on a, on a dime, in a heartbeat. And so they accused him of, of that. But what he did was he saw that his presence there at that time was causing more trouble and more problem than it was solving. Because if he was the center of the attention and they were calling all these things to him, he realized that it was just going to create more havoc and he needed to get out. 
So he went on to Macedonia. From Macedonia, he wrote a letter. Not this one. It would be uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.5 or something like that. Apparently, they don't have it. It's not been found, but there's evidence of it in the Scriptures that he wrote another letter. Apparently, it was a pretty harsh letter. And he sent not Timothy, but Titus to go to Corinth and take that letter to them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were him, I probably would have said to Titus, if things get better, destroy the letter. If they don't, read it to them again and again and again and again until things change. And so we don't know what happened to the letter. We don't know where it is. But apparently that letter made some difference. Although it didn't fix things completely, it made enough of a difference that Paul decided that when he come back through Macedonia, he could spend some more time there. But in order, okay, so Titus took the letter, read the letter to them, they got things fixed up a little bit, and he came back to Paul in Macedonia. And Paul wrote this letter and sent this letter down to them to prepare for his next trip down to Corinth and to make things even better. And so that's what's going on here. He says, I intended to come to you that you might have a second benefit. And some people think that second benefit is that they might be able to take up more of an offering for the church in Jerusalem. I, I wonder if, and, and, and there's all kinds of, of thinking about this, like four or five um, ways they go through this, uh, four, four or five ideas about what this means. And one of them could be that he intended to pass by a second time. And... Um, and you think about this. Don't you love coming to Sunday school? What would it be like to have Sunday school twice a day on Sundays? I don't know. I mean, you know, but you enjoy coming. You enjoy being with the people. Why? Because they're an encouragement to you. Because they help you grow in your faith. And so if Paul would come by Macedonia on his way, stop for quite a while and, and, and minister to them, then go on to Macedonia and then come back, well, not only would the apostle, uh, would the Corinthian Christians be blessed, the apostle Paul would be blessed. And so we don't know exactly what this second benefit would be, um, but it's obvious that it was talking about the second visit that they were there. And so um, he took off, went to Macedonia, wrote the letter, uh, the harsh letter, and let Titus deliver it. Then uh, after things were getting a little bit better, he sent this letter. So therefore, he says, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Did I do it lightly? Did I go, ah, I think I'll just, you know, no. He says, or do the things I plan, or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? Now, it's interesting because he, he, he talks about this yes, yes, and no, no, and we know that Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no, okay? That, he, that Jesus was teaching against the idea of oaths. Don't swear by the temple, don't swear by the, uh, by the altar, don't swear by anything. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. And the Apostle Paul is even looking at this because they think maybe some people thought, okay, yes, yes, no, no, that's another form of an oath. I promise, I really will, I'm going to do it. And so he was saying, quite simply, that if he were to make an oath, his word wouldn't be as good as the word of God. So what he's saying is, do I plan this lightly or do I do it according to the flesh, according to an oath? And then he gets down and he says um, that, uh, that basically this was done by the leadership of the Spirit. He planned to do this. He, he was sure that that's what God wanted. And he wanted to do it. And they were upset that he didn't stick around, some of them. He's weak. He's a coward. He took off when things were tough. 
So they're making all these kinds of accusations against him. And yet he wanted to show them that his ministry was real, that he was a follower of Jesus Christ, that he was an apostle, is an apostle, and that what he said about God the Father, about Jesus Christ, about the scriptures could be trusted. And if they don't trust him, then they don't trust what he says. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, see, there it is. As God is faithful. It's not so much that Paul is faithful, but it's that God is faithful. As God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now, think about that. All the promises of God are yes. The promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ, yes. The promise of peace, the promise of rest in Jesus Christ. You know, we think about that, and we talked about that a little bit in our Sunday school class. Um, when do you need rest the most? When things have been difficult. Or when you're tired, that's when you need it the most. And so we're not going to get that any other way other than resting in the promise of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And he says, in him, everything is yes. All the promises of God in Christ are yes. And in him, amen. I love that. In him, amen. Think about that word. We say that a lot. Amen. Most of the time we say it when we uh, finish a prayer. Amen. And The word quite simply means, so be it. So be it. It's not just a word to say at the end of a prayer. I, I, I have a, somebody one time that came to the church, and uh, he was leading us and teaching us, and every time he prayed, he would never say amen. And I'm thinking, why aren't you saying amen? Why aren't you saying amen? He said, because it's not the end of my prayer. I'm going to pray more later today. And I'm going, amen is just not just the last word you say in a prayer. Amen doesn't just mean this prayer's over, I'm finished. Amen means so be it. So when we pray and we thank God for something, we're saying thank you, God, for this food, so be it. We're thankful. When we pray and we ask God for something, we're asking him to take care of a problem or a difficulty or to heal somebody or to bring somebody to Jesus, so be it. We want that to happen. And so um, when they say that and they say amen, um, It is bringing glory to God. And so his amen for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. So be it. Now, um, here's where some things get a little bit interesting. Talk about this. I mean, to me it's all interesting, but, um, but you look at the next part of this. And he's trying to show them the connection that he has with them. That has to do with his boasting about Corinth and Corinth boasting about him. He wants to show them the connection that he has with them. And the connection that he has with them is, is not a lifestyle. It's not, um, and by that I mean not a Greek or a Roman or a Jewish lifestyle. Uh, the connection that he has with them is Jesus Christ. And so he goes there in verse 20, um, 21 and 22 and he says, Now... He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit 
in our hearts as a guarantee. And so um, I, I, <laughs> I love that phrase. I love that whole thing. Um, if you look at those four words, establishes, anointed, sealed, and given, three out of four of those are past tense. But one of them establishes is continuous. Okay? And so what he was getting at here is he was saying, God continues through Jesus Christ to establish you in the faith, to build you up, to, um, to make you firm and established and to um, make you steadfast and constant, continues to grow you and give you the faith that you need to live the life that Christ calls you to live. He continues to do that after, after he has anointed you, after he has sealed us in the spirit and after he has given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Um, and I love that picture. I mean, I, I, uh, he, has, he establishes us, that's continual. The growth and the faith and the courage and all that is continual. He establishes us. He continues to make us stronger. Day in and day out, we need that kind of establishing and that kind of strength. We may have it one day, something difficult may come at us. God needs to continue establishing us and making us stand firm. But he anointed them. That's a one-time thing. He has anointed us. He who has anointed us through Christ is God. Now, I love that picture. Um, it means to be consecrated and to qualified for service. I want you to see something, though, because we think about that word a lot, and we think about it, uh, um, God anointed prophets, and God anointed, or they anointed prophets, and they anointed kings. And in the Old Testament, the uh, anointing, the word anointing, is used for commissioning somebody to a particular office, to a specific office. But in Isaiah 61, it's... Um, Appears It looks like it's a metaphor for the Spirit's equipping for mission or service. All right, so the Apostle Paul is anointed. And if he says that um, he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us and has anointed us is God. He's not just talking about Paul, Timothy, and Silas. He's talking also about the Corinthian Christians. So he who establishes us Paul and the Corinthian Christians has anointed us, Paul, his team, and the Corinthian Christians. And he has, and so the in the context here, it's referring to the Spirit's equipping of the church to carry out the mission of Christ in the world. So how do we take that? He is continually holding us up, giving us strength, helping us stand firm. But he's also anointed us. Each one of us, you and me, not just a pastor, not just a Sunday school teacher, not just those that are ordained to the ministry or licensed to the ministry. He has anointed each one of us for ministry and for service. He has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That word sealed means to mark or to stamp, to place a seal on. There's a lot of Old Testament um, things that it does. It can mean... Um, uh, to something that was done to indicate ownership. The Spirit uh, had stamped us as belonging to God uh, as opposed to principalities and powers in Ephesians 1. The, um, it, it's, um, the sealing of the Spirit refers to the believer being marked as God's possession. It can show something that belongs to somebody. They'd have a signet ring and they would stamp letters or stamp things and 
that would give evidence that that king or that person had sent that letter. Um, it uh, guarantees security of something. It guarantees the quality of goods. It provides proof of identity. And so um, here it's proof that they, as well as Paul and Timothy and Silas, belong to God. He has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I love that picture. That guarantee can also be uh, like a down payment or a deposit. Um, and, uh, and when you make a deposit on something, they have an, um, you have an obligation that you're going to pay the rest. All right? And so if the spirit is a deposit, it doesn't mean that we get part of the Holy Spirit. But what it means is there's something else, guess what, that's coming. Something else that's going to happen. It's not here on this earth. It's not here in this life. The Holy Spirit is the deposit, the guarantee that one day when this life is over, we will have an eternity with God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Okay? And so um, what we see from all of this is the Apostle Paul trying to show them that God is faithful and because he preaches the word of God, they can see also that he is faithful. And if the Corinthians doubt his integrity, they also cast doubts on the Spirit's work in his life and in their own life. So there's a few things that we can see from this. Because um, uh, there's some other theological uh, significance here, some other things that we can apply. The um, Holy Spirit dwelling in us guarantees that our relationship with God is eternal. It's not something that is just by and by, just a little bit for now, but it's eternal. Our, our, the Spirit is that seal, that stamp on our lives. Um, and it's a part of the whole. Uh, um, Gordon Fee wrote, For Paul, the gift of the Spirit is the first part of the redemption of the whole person, the beginning of the process that will end when believers assume their spiritual bodies. Believers also don't receive a portion, they receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, also, the final inheritance the Spirit guarantees is yet to be realized. It's going to happen when this life is over or when Christ returns. Um, the deposit of the Spirit doesn't come without strings. There is an obligation. He is going to meet his obligation, and it is also up to us to fulfill our part of the contract, um, to live the way he calls us to live. So quickly, quickly, what do we see here? One, one that our boasting needs to be not in ourselves, not in our own ability, not in how... Uh, how good we are at any one thing or two things or three things or whatever, uh, our boasting needs to be in Christ and in God who gives us the ability to do what we've done. We see here that when we teach and when we preach, we ought to do it in such a way, hopefully, that people understand. Kathy used to get on me quite a bit because I would use uh, theological words that I read in books. And she said, what does that word mean? And so when I use a word like soteriology, I would have to say that is the theology of salvation. Uh, I try not to use those words too much because most of you don't really care much about reading a book of systematic theology. Uh, so we need to preach and teach in a way that people understand. We need to live lives of um, simplicity and godly sincerity, realizing that Jesus Christ is the one who gives us the ability to do that. I really, I still like um, Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love that. Verse 12 says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The Apostle Paul is talking about the way he's living there, a life of simplicity and integrity. Um, 
And the way to do that, quite honestly, is what we read in our hymn of decision, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. There are some people that all they seek for, all they look for, are the comforts of this world, the things of this world. They're not concerned about anything else. To them, to them, this life is all there is. So you better get what you can and enjoy it while you can. But we know the truth. We know that there is another life coming after this one. And then in order to have an eternal life, we need to know God the Father, and we need to know Him through Jesus the Son. I am challenged by this hymn to constantly turn my eyes upon Jesus. I've turned my eyes to Him for salvation. I need to keep my eyes turned on Him so that I will continually live a life of simplicity and of godly sincerity or purity. Father, I thank you for your love. God, I thank you for this second and third and fourth and fifth opportunity. Thank you for the chance, Father, to, to know you and to know your son. Thank you for the eternal life that you give us. Father, I pray that in this life, we will continue to turn our eyes upon Jesus, that he will be the focus of our lives, that even when his glory seems too bright for us because of our own sin. We will recognize that it's not his glory that is the problem, but it's our sin. Father, help us to turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.